Our theme today is how do we reach people, the people of our times. We are living in the period of Western history, it's listed up here on the, on the TV, uh, known as the post-modern period. It's a term used to describe the shift in worldviews which has occurred and continues to occur in our society with regard to life and living. Now, I think to best understand uh, what the term means, we have to look at the other descriptions of the worldviews or philosophies, and they're listed up here as well as in your bulletin outline. Firstly, and I'm talking about Western civilization here, the pre-modern era. Scholars differ on the exact timing of these eras, but for our purposes, we will be safe as conservative estimate in saying that the pre-modern era worldview was the philosophy of life which prevailed in people's thinking from the time of ancient Greek thought through the Renaissance, through the Reformation, up until the time of history known as the Enlightenment. While it's true that this period of history included very complex and mixed philosophies, for example, paganism, raw paganism was in this period. Rationalism was in this period. Rationalism means reason rules. And we also had biblical revelation in this period. Two strong beliefs characterized the pre-modern period. Here they are. Belief in the supernatural. That's number one. And secondly, the belief that truth was absolute. In the medieval period, Christianity came to the fore. This pre-modern era was characterized by great thinkers like Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, Calvin. All these people were in this pre-modern period. They believed in absolute truth. They believed in the supernatural. These were not open to question. I just heard on the news this morning, the new math, uh, the new definition of math, is that if a child comes up with the idea that two and two equals 11, not four, that's okay if he or she can explain how they arrived at 11. Let me tell you that you couldn't do anything in terms of mechanics or computers or anything of that nature if you believe that 2 plus 2 equals 11. But they're bending it. They don't want to say to little Junior, you're wrong. (laughs) You're wrong. 2 plus 2 is not 11. They don't want to say that. So they say, well, tell us how you got to 11. And if he's got a good enough explanation, he'll say, okay, for you, for you, 2 plus 2 is 11. And we'll allow that to be the case. Well, not in this pre-modern period. 
2 plus 2 was absolutely 4. The people of this era acknowledged God's truth as the unifying cement which gave unity to reality. Hence the term universe. Universe. God created the universe. Unity. One ultimate creative world, not many. Well, then came the modern era, commonly known as the period of the Enlightenment, and I put that in quotes. As sinners continued to strive for independence from God and his rule, they began to view the supernatural as superstition. Modern man did not need the supernatural to guide him, Reason and science would give us all the answers we needed to understand the universe. Some historians date this era from the time of the French Revolution, 1789, to the fall of the Berlin Wall, 1989. In this era, God was not totally rejected. He was just banished to a significant corner of the universe. It was the age of mathematics. So as a purely mechanical view of life arose. If God existed, it was believed that he acted like a watchmaker who simply wound up the universe to run thereafter on its own through natural laws. God was disinterested with his creation. He left the world to man to discover, to conquer, to rule. Secular humanism came to the fore during this period. Man became the measure of all things. Man can do anything he sets his mind to. Now you see, we're still hearing traces of that today. You have to understand that as we move from period to period, you're going to have holdovers that go into the next period a little bit. And that's what was happening today. So man can do anything he sets his mind to. God is not needed. Just use your brain and rely on science and all the ills of society will be solved. Education became the new God. You need to get a good education. That's important. And man became master of his own destiny. What do you mean you're not going to go to college? Yes, you are. That was the discussion around many a family table during this period of time. Through logic, through reason, through experience, all the problems could be resolved. Reason ruled and revelation, that is the Bible, became irrelevant. Irrelevant. It was during this period of time that the higher critics of the Bible began a methodical attempt to demythologize the Bible. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, we'll take out all of the miracles in the Bible. We'll take out all the supernatural that's in the Bible. We'll take out all references to Jesus being divine. We'll rewrite the historical accounts. We can't have Israelites crossing the Red Sea on drowned dry ground. Everyone knows God did not know how to spell. 
He left out one of the E's. It really was the Reed Sea, not the Red Sea. See what happened with regard uh, to all of that. This is the age of modernism, the Enlightenment. But modernism failed to bring in the utopia people predicted. Because during the modern period, guess what? We had World War I. We had World War II. We had the rise of communism, Nazism, the bombing of Japan with nuclear bombs, the Korean War, the Vietnam fiasco. And so people began to question whether reason, whether technology, were all they were cracked up to be. And it is this disillusionment with the modernism's inability to produce a perfect and tranquil habitat that caused people to reassess their faith in science and reason alone. What is more, moderns denied the spiritual side of man, teaching that we, we're, we're just animals. We're just animals. Don't talk about soul. You can't put that in the test tube. You can't prove that. So we're just animals. The accident of random atoms coming together. Darwinism had its heyday during the Enlightenment. God was replaced with evolution. And man was thought to be able to do whatever he liked to whatever he wanted with no creator to answer to. Ah. But when men began to do evil things to one another with no moral absolutes to say what was right or what was wrong, all kinds of ills went unchecked in the modern era. Abortion, euthanasia, rampant drug use, promiscuous sex in the VDs that were associated with that with AIDS, rise in rapes, murders, corporate scandals, pollution of the environment. If man was so capable of ruling himself well, why all these ills in society? You see, modernism failed to produce what it promised. By removing God and enthroning human reason and science, man was now free to do all of the unrestrained evil he was capable of. And who was to say what was right and what was wrong? You took God out of the equation and man be dead. He, he did become an animal. He thought like an animal and he acted like an animal. And all of his morality went down the tubes. Now that brings us to the postmodern era. What is this? Well, that's our era. This is where we are living. Postmodern people deny the existence of any universal truth. And guess what? They question every worldview. See if this sounds like anybody you know. Postmodern person believes 
that no one worldview can claim to be more true than another. We have to accept all people's beliefs as equally true, equally valid, equally applicable to life. Everyone can have the truth because truth is what works for you. Two plus two can be eleven if you have a way of explaining how you got to that. You have your, your truth. I have my truth. Let's just live and let live. In postmodernism, truth is not objective. It is only subjective. It is not out there for you to discover. It is whatever you interpret reality to be. You make your truth. The issues of morality, no one's view is more right than another. And you know, this fuels the politically correct jargon of our day. You may not say that homosexuality is wrong and heterosexuality is correct. You may only say that they are different. There's the word, different. Any language that seems to indicate one truth being more acceptable than another must be eliminated. There is no such thing as absolute truth. History is not a recollection of past events as recorded. History is revised so as to enhance the self-image of those groups of people who have been excluded or oppressed in the past. So we rewrite history to favor blacks and women and Native Americans, and on and on it goes. One writer puts it this way, those who celebrate Western civilization are a custom of narrow-minded Euro, E-U-R-O, Centralism, Europe, you know, Eurocentralism. This view is challenged by Afrocentralism, Africa, which exalts Africa as the pinnacle of civilization. You say, oh, who would think that? Africa as the pinnacle of civilization? Well, there is a professor named Leachy, he's an anthropologist. He says civilization began in Africa, not Mesopotamia. Mm, Not where we know the Garden of Eden was. You say, well, how do you know where it was? Because we have a description of the rivers in the Garden of Eden, of which two, the Tigris and Euphrates, are still identifiable today. Again, male-dominant thought is replaced in these histories by feminist models. So patriarchal religions, such as Judaism and Christianity, are challenged and replaced with matriarchal religions. What do you mean by that? The influence of the Bible is countered by the influence of goddess worship. 
Sophia. Goddess Sophia. I like that name. Sophia is one of the Greek names for knowledge. So there's a religion that worships Sophia, feminine deity of knowledge. Now the key factor is this. All beliefs, all beliefs must be tolerated except the belief that denies that all beliefs must be tolerated. (laughs) So you can see that Christianity will be under attack because it asserts that Jesus Christ is alone the way, the truth, and the life, and that no person comes before God the Father except through him. John 14, verse 6. That exclusive claim of Jesus is too exclusive for postmoderns. It's too dogmatic. It's too absolute. It's too universal in its application. It allows no room for other views. That is postmodernism. Well, that's, boy, that's a big bite to chew off. How how are we going to deal with that? Is there any light at the end of the tunnel? Is postmodernism all bad? Is there any way for Christianity to make an inroad with such people? Well, one good thing is that all worldviews come under scrutiny, and guess what? Christianity can endure the closest scrutiny. We're not afraid of that. Before, in the modern era, science and reason condemned the supernatural. Often mocked people who held to religious convictions. Like the builders of the Tower of Babel, there was only one language spoken, one voice dominant, and no one could say anything contrary. The moderns built a similar tower of autonomy and unity too. This was the voice of science, the voice of human reason. No statements of faith or the supernatural were given any kind of credence in the modern era. Christians were mocked. They were ridiculed as unenlightened fools. You and I have lived through that. Now the all-sufficiency of human reason is being questioned. And the view that the material world is all that there is, is now viewed as being ridiculous. Complete flip-flop. There is now room for the spiritual. There is room for the supernatural. Now we have to be careful what we're going to call the supernatural and what supernatural we're going to adhere to, but there's at least an openness for that. Some secular schools are allowing the Bible to be taught in the school curriculum so long as it is used to teach Bible history, Bible events, Bible poetry, and so on. You wouldn't have found that in the modern era. And this new Bible curriculum has the endorsement of the ACLU of all people. 
There is now acceptance of the supernatural instead of ridicule. People are not so quick to laugh at the idea of miracles or the wonders performed by Christ. Everyone is not automatically, automatically bowing down to the shrine of science. Even scientists now have freedom to explain some of the anomalies they discover in terms of other than scientific mumble-jumble. This does not mean that we reject science, that we reject reason, but we see them as tools to help us discover God's creation and give right assessments of our world. The fact that postmodernism comes out of a frustrated people who could not find utopia through man's wisdom, I think that's good. It opens the door for the wisdom of God, which had been a closed subject to most moderns through their own biases. So, though we wish Christianity's Absolute claims would be taken more seriously. I think the door is open for us to talk more freely about spiritual matters and not be automatically turned off by people. People will listen because they're searching. And they are searching because reason and science have left them down in so many many areas. Okay, then how do we reach the postmoderns, the people of our age? First thing to note is that most postmodern people are frightened about the future. They are. I've never seen such skittishness in our culture as we're experiencing in our day. Almost every day something comes up in the news This scares people. The economy, the war in Afghanistan, terrorism on our own soil. Can't go shopping at the mall without thinking, I have my carry permit, should I carry my pistol? Because some nutcase, it just happened again this week, goes into the mall and starts killing people for the fun of it. Stock market up and down. What's happening to my retirement, my 401k? Even spiritual destinies, because heaven on earth has never materialized. So they're frightened. Oh, and Obamacare. What's going to happen to my health insurance? What happens if I have a major something or other and I have to go to the hospital? How am I going to pay for a $150,000 surgery? My doctor is saying he's not going to take any insurance anymore. I got to pay cash. I got to fight it out with the insurance company personally. Before George Harrison died, he's one of the Beatles, they showed a home video of him emaciated, gaunt, gray-looking in his skin from disease and drug use. Commentator said, he made his peace, I'm quoting now, he made his peace with God before he died. 
He died at age 58. 58. Harrison's family gave out this eulogy. Quote, He left this world as he lived in it, conscious of God, fearless of death, and at peace, surrounded by family and friends. He often said, Everything else can wait, but the search for God cannot wait and love one another, end quote. But it was a false peace. Because for George Harrison, his God was his idol concept of Krishna. Krishna, Christ. Hindu term. He perceived him to be Krishna through his Hindu philosophy. Let me give it to you in his own words. Although Christ in my mind, if we just stopped right there, he's in trouble, right? Christ in my mind is an absolute yogi. That is a teacher. I think many Christian teachers today are misrepresenting Christ. My idea in My Sweet Lord, that's a song he wrote, was to sneak up on them a bit. The point was to have the people not offended by hallelujah. And by the time it gets in the chorus to Harry Krishna, they're already hooked and their foot is tapping and they're already singing along hallelujah to kind of lull them into a sense of false security. Does this sound like something God would do with us? And then suddenly it turns into Hare Krishna. The knowledge that's given in Prabhupada's book, that's his favorite Hindu Swami, say that man can become purified and with divine vision he can see God. You get pure by chanting. And then you see him. End quote. The Bible says that there is no unrighteous, not even wrong. One, Romans 3 verse 10. And again, that it was our great, I'm reading scripture, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Titus 3, verse 13 and following. Paul writing to Titus. Harrison, like many other mystics of our day, created his own idea of heaven, his own idea of peace, his own idea of salvation, which is part of that Eastern thought that we studied in a previous message. But we must be bold enough and fearless enough to say outright that purity with God is through the atoning work of Jesus' blood and only through Jesus' blood. We're going to take some flack for this because postmoderns hate any idea of one truth or only truth religions. But Peter tells us in our text, verse 13, 
who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. If you want to win postmoderns and cause them to think, you have to be fearless in your presentation of the gospel. Fearlessness is the result not of arrogance, but of conviction of the truth. They're searching and don't have it. We have it, and they don't believe it, but they need to hear it. And you have to enshrine in your heart the truth that Christ of the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm empathetic to Harrison's search for God and peace. How could I not be? He, like many of our generation, was disillusioned by the modern's refusal to acknowledge the spiritual side of man. And so he's saying, I know there's a spiritual side. But we cannot be sympathetic to Harrison's conclusions because his Krishna is not the Christ of the Bible who alone purifies sinners through his cross work. We have to have a fearless affirmation of Christ as the only Lord and Savior. Not because I say so, but because Christ himself says so. And we are his disciples. Secondly, verse 15 says, Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Sometimes a negative criticism is leveled against Christians, which goes something like this. Well, you Christians have an answer for everything, don't you? The accusation is meant to suggest that no one knows all the answers, and so there ought to be more toleration on your part of other views that perhaps are not Christian. I think Peter seems to be sensitive to this accusation as he says that when we answer, we must do so with gentleness and respect. No arrogance, no pride, no smugness, no condescension on your part. Don't do those things when you're giving your witness, when you're giving your answer. But Peter does not suggest that we do not have all the truth and so should tolerate falsity. No, instead he says, always be ready to give an answer, which implies, yeah, we have an answer to give. There ought to be an acknowledgement of the truth to which we hold and how that truth gives us hope in a world of uncertainty. People want and deserve answers. They're looking for answers. If they had the answers to their problems, they wouldn't be asking you. And what is more, and here's the important part, the answers we are to give have nothing to do with our human opinion. We're not saying, well, you have your opinion and I have my opinion. What's your opinion? Oh, well, let me share you with you my opinion. No. 
We're simply sharing the gospel of God, not our answers, but God's, of which Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. This is a universal message which discouraged people need to hear. When they say, well, what do you think about that, 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 that? They're not saying, tell me your opinion. Well, maybe they are thinking that. But then we need to come back and say something like, well, the Bible says, well, God's word says, well, this scripture over here is God saying, da, 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 da. And the gospel is for everyone who believes. The gospel has power to save people from their sin and its consequences. There's not one gospel for Jews and another for Gentiles, one for Hare Krishna people, Hindus, and one for Buddhist people. No. For in the gospel, writes Paul, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, and just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith, faith in this gospel. Now most moderns, or po- excuse me, most postmoderns do not believe that. They believe, like Harrison, that purity with God comes by their own efforts and their own deeds. They see no need of a savior other than themselves, no need for God's wrath to be satisfied. They do not see themselves as unrighteous and unable to do good, nor would they think that their sin is bad enough to consign them to hell if they ever even believe in hell. I'm not that bad. You will say, well, I thought postmoderns do not like dogmatic statements. Assertions which box them into one way of viewing things. Well, that's true, they don't. But we do not give up the gospel for these postmodern views. Christianity is an exclusive religion because it teaches an exclusive and unique Savior. Verse 18 of our text. For Christ died for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That's it. That's the gospel. There can be no equivocation on that. Postmoderns may think they don't need someone to die for them in order to make them righteous and acceptable acceptable to God, but they do. They need to be told that they need a Savior. So you use the scriptures like this, and there's many others, to tell them the truth. Give biblical answers to genuine questions. And may it come across that you are quoting scripture and using the Bible so they get the idea, oh, this is not his opinion. He, he's quoting this guy called the Apostle Paul or Peter or whatever. And he's quoting the Bible at me, the word of God. And then thirdly, and this is very important, Live your Christian life before the watching world in such a way, verse 16 of our text, that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. A witness without this point will not fly. Let me read it again. 
live your life, your Christian life before the watching world in such a way that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This word slander is an interesting um, Greek word. It's, it's a compound. It's made up of two Greek words. Kata, K-A-T-A, meaning down, and kaleo, and you can hear it in the English word, meaning to call, kaleo. Put them together, to call down, to speak down. Not in the, not in the sense of an, an adult uh, speaking down to a child in condescension, not that, not that idea, but more literally, to debase someone's character, to speak evilly of someone, to bring them down, to speak against, to accuse, to gossip, to spread a false report. Kata, kaleo. <coughs> Live your life in such a way that when they call you down, <coughs> when they debase you, when they ridicule you, when they speak evil of your good behavior. Notice that. They speak evil of your good behavior. They'll be ashamed. Now it's interesting that Peter does not say, live such a good life that the world will not slander you. He doesn't say that. But rather, live such good lives in Christ that when the world slanders you... They spread their falsehoods about you. They will be ashamed. May I say this morning that you are not responsible for what people say about you? They will say what they will. And much of what is said will be slander. The evil, the evil one wants to bring you down by ruining your reputation and thereby negating your message. That's the whole idea. Slander the person and then... I don't have to listen to you. You might be speaking truth, but I don't have to listen to you if you're a hypocrite. And that's what the evil one tries to do. You can't help that kind of treatment. Verse 17, it's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. Here's the ultimate thing. But you can live in such a way that your behavior is a living example to people that lies have been spread about you. And in the end, the liars will be ashamed by their false accusations because they'll be caught in a lie. How do we live this way? Aren't we sinners? Yes, we are. Aren't we going to sin? Yes. Aren't people going to see inconsistencies and hypocrisies in our life? Yes, they are. So how do we live in such a way as to... Shut their mouth from slander. Verse 16. Keeping a clear conscience. Again, verse 21. The pledge of a good conscience towards God. How do we maintain a good conscience? Go to chapter 4. Look at verses 1 and following. Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. 
Well, what change will that mean? Verse 3, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into this same flood of dissipation. And they heap, there it is, they heap abuse on you. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so you can pray. Basically, Peter's saying this. If you keep running with the old crowd and keep doing the same sinful things that they do and that you always did, you can forget about a clear conscience and you can forget about a transforming witness to postmoderns. They will see through you in a heartbeat and their slander will be No slander at all. It will be the truth. Our lives, brethren, must back up our words. In fact, it is often as people first view our lives and the righteousness of Christ displayed there that they start asking you to give a reason for the hope that you have about your future and the age to come and so on. They see the difference and they scratch their head and they say, "Well, well, well, what's with you? So our lives can either be a magnet to draw attention to our Lord and Savior or it can be a put off to repel people and make them run from Christ and run from the gospel. Postmodern people have had it with hypocrisy. They're looking for the real deal. Though they know not what or whom to seek. That's where you come in with the gospel. And then lastly, we can witness by not backing off from the supernatural or the judgment to come or the supremacy of Christ. Peter mentions Noah's flood in our text and he refers to it in terms of God waiting patiently, verse 20, for people to repent of their sin and be saved. But only eight were saved from that devastating flood. So he deals with a miracle of worldwide scope. He doesn't say, well, you've heard about a big flood, but uh, you know, I'm not going to really get into that. You may have a different... No, he, he affirms it. No repentance came to the majority, and God's patience ran out. That's Peter's point. The love God that most postmoderns are comfortable with, and whom they have heard preached again and again by modern pulpits, needs to be offset in your witness by the reality of the God who judges sinners. God is not a pushover. They think he is. God doesn't take rejection very well by his creation. They think of God as disinterested, as remote, as a sentimental big daddy in the sky. They think of evolution has taught them that they are not a creature of God at all. So they don't know the God of the Bible. Verse 21 mentioned the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not reincarnation now, resurrection, which is different. Who has gone into heaven, 
and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. This is no namby-pamby Harry Krishna guru sitting around listening to his followers chanting, Om, Om. No, this is the Lord Jesus Christ. King of kings and Lord of lords of whom God himself testifies to the nations, and we read it this morning in our meditation reading, you will rule them, you, Jesus, you will rule them, the nations, the kings, with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, wise up! Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. You better kiss the sun. You better love up to him, lest he be angry with you and you be destroyed in the way you're going. For his wrath can flare in a moment. Psalm 2, 9 through 12. The Jesus most moderns preach, modern pastors preach, isn't worth any respect and any all. He isn't. All of you, turn in your Bibles now and we'll do this as our final reading in the close. Revelation chapter 19. In your Bibles, Revelation, last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 19. And we'll begin our reading with verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. Yeah. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's dressed in a robe that's dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. We're studying that on Sunday night. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, one. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. There's Psalm 2 again. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brethren, that's the Christ postmoderns need to hear 
in your witness. They have so been fed the pablum of the love God. And Jesus loves everybody. They have no concept of God's holiness and justice and righteousness. They're not scared of judgment. And they're not scared of hell. Because they think, here's their definition of death. When you die, you die. And that's it. You're just gone. No consciousness. You just cease to be. That's that material idea coming over into the postmodern. We're just material. We decompose in the grave. That's it. No soul, no spirit, no supernatural. We need to tell them the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for this study. Help us to think Christianly, think straight in a crooked world. And it isn't our opinion versus another opinion. It isn't our storyline versus another storyline. It's God's word telling us who and what we are, what the future holds, and how in Christ we can go into the future at peace in heart and mind, knowing that we are rightly reconciled and at peace with God, the creator of the universe, God, the judge. That he has judged our sins in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not letting us off of our sins. He's not sweeping our sins under the carpet. He's not turning and looking the other way. No, he's dealing with every one of our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we put our faith in Christ, if we believe that Jesus did that for me, and I'm trusting that he did that for me, and I'm not trusting in some kind of self-goodness and self-reformation, if I trust in Christ and in him alone, Lord, therein is salvation. Remove the pride of our heart. Boy, we're so proud. We just think we're good people. We think we're okay. We think we got God figured out. We say, well, I'm a searcher. Well, I believe in God. We say all of these things, and yet these are idle concepts of God. God of the Bible is the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring us to know him. Bring us to live our lives if we do know him in such a way that the watching world will have no occasion to slander us and will be ashamed of anything they say about our good behavior in Christ. Move among our assembly this morning. Save whom you will. Be with our uh, stream audience out on the internet. Save whom you will. O oh, Jesus, for your glory and their good, we pray. Amen. Him is once again from Trinity. And this time we'll sing 499.